To ship, of course. It's time again for Build Engineering DevOps, Release Management, and everything in between. It is the Ship Show. I'm your host, Paul Reed, Sober Build Eng on Twitter, and it's SoberBuildEngineer.com. Joining me tonight for episode 42. This is Seth at Chief Plus on Twitter. This is you, Seth. I built Scientist on Twitter. How are you gentlemen doing? Good. Yes, yeah, yeah, making it. Making it, yeah. For episode 42, you might be thinking that we're going to give you the answer to life, the universe, and everything. However, we actually are going to do that. We're going to be talking with Steve Morosky from Stack Exchange. He's going to be giving us the state of DevOps in the Windows space. He actually made fun of me for that title, but I, I, I like it. So Checkhead was last week. He attended, and we're going to be talking about everything DevOpsy on Windows. But first up, as we always do, news and views. So first tonight we have an extended Adobe Creative Cloud outage that took a number of days to get fixed. Did you guys? Did any of you use either of you use Creative Cloud? No, I don't. I don't use it. I heard about it, but I don't. I don't use it. I mean, yeah. They don't um, let me around creative things. <laughs> well, but it was interesting, right? I mean, it's another example of this sort of companies telling us you want this and and you want uh, these applications in the cloud. And I guess it was uh, their login service had problems. Um, and it was out for days. It's like, what are you supposed gonna, to do? Yeah, it's going to get interesting when it's, you know, things like not just the Creative Cloud, but you have, you know, uh, Blender Cloud and uh, the Un- Unreal Engine stuff right. all being in the cloud. And yeah. what happens when that goes out for days and you're building a product on it? Right. I mean, that's the big thing. I, I could imagine if you're you're trying to meet deadlines with stuff and Adobe's answer is, well, sorry. Yeah, it's interesting. Speaking of online services that are changing, uh, brought this up for Seth. Electronic Arts is ending support for a number of online games. Did you actually uh, did you see that happen or hear about it in, your, in the gaming? Oh service? yeah, they always they always. I mean, this is this is a common thing. It's when you when you have to basically like turn off turn out the lights on a number of games. Doesn't that make you I, I, like single tier? You know? Oh God, yeah. I mean, Battlefield Two, they shut down. Man, single like they were actually Never there were multiple tiers. Oh, okay. So Neverwinter Nights, like I could, I, to be fair, take it or leave it. But so the <laughs> Battlefield servers, I mean, come on, guys, that's just mean. Yeah, they, they, they refuse to give us another Battlefront game, but they're shutting off the old servers. It's just a move. I wonder. It's interesting. I wonder they're if they're expensive. They are really expensive to keep running. So I totally understand the 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 whole like wanting to shut it down, like bespoke services like that for these games when you only have like maybe you know a thousand or so active subscribers. Like it really the the cost justification doesn't pan out. Um, but let me ask you this: point. with the rise in configuration management and cloud, do you think it changes the economics? Because if, if you actually have all of those servers, if you can bring them up, and while the game is popular, maybe using physical machines, but then when it's not, you you uh, shift that to Azure. We're going to be talking about Azure later in the show, or Amazon. Like, does that? Do you think that changes the economics? Seth? It so yes, it can or could, I should say. Does it usually not? Like I've seen a lot of games that were really popular at the outset and that didn't do well, even that that went AWS or whatever, and they they were able to save a lot of money by not over provisioning, but at the same on the same token, that didn't save them from the inevitable fate of being a game. <laughs> so no matter what you do, if you still have a game at the end of the day, you can you can DevOps the hell out of it, and that's super cool. 
but some at some point it becomes not cost effective uh, in terms of not just not just the the resources online that's certainly great but the the headcount you have dedicating time to it that's cool DevOps, bro right that's that's a, cool, that's, that's a that's a, a person supposed to do art and direction and all that other even if there's only, I mean, I've seen some games go down to one developer, and it's really, it's really sad because you know the game's dying. This one person's like keeping it alive, and they're like <laughs> fighting the good fight. But at some point, you're like, let it die, just let it just, die. This person wants to go work on something new. Like the economics don't work out. It is easy to keep them running if you had them if, like certain management systems that would would account basically be able to cover a variety of different games, like a lot of studios have. But I, I mean, I. You know, if it sucks, it sucks. It's gonna fail. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> your DevOps, your DevOps will not save your shit game. <laughs> Next up, actually, Seth, you pointed this out. Uh, Rel Seven is picking XFS as the default file system, which is kind of interesting. I was actually I said Rel Seven. I'm assuming they, yeah, the Enterprise. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Oh, um, and we forces with the CentOS folks. They're the CentOS and and the Rel folks are now playing. They're all nice and happy, friendly now. Yeah, right? but that, so this is kind of scary because uh, Ted So, I think one of the kernel developers was pointing out. We actually were talking about this at uh, I think it was ChefConf. Mm-hmm. The problem because you were like XFS is awesome sauce, and I was like, no, actually, it's got a lot of problems. And he was saying that the the XFS is uh, was originally developed at SGI, and he was saying that the file system itself has a number of parts where in the old SGI, the hardware was just better. And so they had a, a, way, a number of ways to signal to the system that the pa- power was going out, and so you would flush the XFS buffers correctly. But with PC hardware, this is actually a problem. I'll see if I can link to that post, but have they fixed those problems, or is it just like whatever, YOLO, it's XFS, it's cool. It's XFS, man. It's like, it's done, right? Like, <laughs> no, one, no one's fixing it up too much. Um, I think well, also... Wouldn't think this it, concern you, then? Well, I also think it matters less, like, like the integrity of, of file... I mean, like, don't get me wrong, you should obviously want system integrity at a variety of levels. However, um, especially when you're doing, like, big distributed apps or whatever, it's like, the, the, the file system, the local machine is worthless and disposable, and so if, like, I mean, these are going to be VMs most of the time, and so... I don't know. Do you, do you care? It's, it's a different threshold. It's a different threshold of caring. And also, you're not going to be storing your, you know, this this might not. You may not be storing like your your database server may not. Be, I mean, XFS is the default, but that doesn't mean it's, you know. Okay. Well, if we see stories of XFS meltdowns, you can well, owe me a you're owe me a coke. Fine. I mean, people if people are having meltdowns over file system problems, they're doing shit wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, tell, tell them that while they're ha- hating their lives. Next up, we've got 20 questions with Donald Newth. Apparently, uh, we'll link to the article in the, the show notes, but apparently he just published The Art of Computer Programming in ebook format. Um, and I was, if you're going to have those books, go get the published books. Yeah, get, get the hardback. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but on the other hand, if you need to carry the books around to read them, get, then get the ebook format because. Uh. Oh my gosh. But yeah, there's some uh, 20 questions from different people, actually. Researchers and... Uh, He's still not doing email. He's still... Right. Yeah, somebody, somebody asked him a question about email, whether he thinks that... Uh, <laughs> if you Should scientists drop email? He said, well, basically, if you need to communicate, use email. He likes to get to the bottom of things instead of... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I so, guess. Yeah, I mean, I, I know a lot of people who wish they could get rid of email. Yeah. I wish I could. So I understand the sentiment. 
Last up tonight, uh, we just wanted to give a quick shout-out. Uh, AT&T published 50 years of the Bell System Technical Journal. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. Uh, very interesting reading, especially I was looking at uh, the technical journal from January 1925, and um, there's an art. The limitation of the gain of two-way telephone repeaters by impedance irregularities. So if you like old kind of old-timey hacky stuff, they've made that fully available as PDF, and you can go... Check it out there. Paul, oh, is, this, is this for the phone hacker in you? Or? <laughs> no, you know what I actually like? There's a lot of old... Yeah, I don't know. There's a lot of old school research about like networks and stuff that I find really interesting. You know, I'm, I'm sure somewhere in here is, is the discussion of the... You remember the famous switch bug that, yep. uh, uh, that caused all the switches to denial of service themselves? Yeah. And it turned out to be related to a failed case statement. Um, mm-hmm. I'm sure the postmortem is somewhere in the Bell System Technical Journal. I should actually look it up, see if I can find that. But but I just find that stuff fascinating. Um, yeah, no, it is totally. Yeah. Last up tonight, we wanted to mention uh, we actually have a number of interesting announcements. So we're still doing the underrepresented in tech ticket for Velocity. We'll put an email address in the show notes for that. But it is velocity-santaclara-diversity at theshipshow.com. If you're a member of an underrepresented group in tech, we have a ticket uh, available. And we are also providing uh, some uh, money for travel and uh, accommodations while you're here if you're outside of the San Francisco Bay Area. Submissions need to be to us by May 28th. 11.59 Pacific, 11.59 p.m. Pacific time, uh, so we can get that all scheduled. The fine folks over at O'Reilly have actually also given us a Velocity ticket to give away, and so we are going to be doing our first ever ship show contest, and what we would like is a picture of you where the the weirdest place you listen to the ship show. Um, we've had some people tell us on Twitter that they do laundry to the ship show and they do gardening while they're listening to us chat about DevOps and, and such. So take a picture of yourself listening to the ship show in the weirdest place. Post it on Twitter with the hashtag uh, listening to the ship show. We'll put well, how to spell it in the show notes, but uh, post that photo. We'll take all of them and we will uh, raffle off the free ticket to Velocity from O'Reilly. We appreciate them not offering that to us. So, next up, Stephen Morosky and the state of DevOps life on Windows. Here on the show. Welcome back to the Chip Show. So we're joined tonight by Site Reliability Engineer at Stack Exchange and friend of the podcast, Stephen Morosky. Welcome to the Ship Show. Hey guys, thanks for having me. And so it's kind of funny. You have basically taken the role in my life of correcting me whenever I say something out of date about Windows or Microsoft products. And I actually really appreciate it because you're basically sort of the Microsoft and Windows sounding board whenever I open my big mouth and it's uninformed. Yeah, it's it's changed quite a bit since many people have uh, have touched it. Uh, if you had experience, if you had experience with it, you know, like in the last ten years or so, the last couple of years have radically changed the management experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that's actually what we're joining us tonight to talk about. Um, we kind of wanted to do uh, the state of DevOps on Windows, or would, would that be WinOps? I don't. I'm not quite 
<laughs> quite sure what we would call that because you you called us out on Twitter on the fact that we've been covering some really fascinating develops. We mentioned Azure, a couple episodes at ChefConf, the developments there. Chef is doing stuff with Windows. It's supported, fully supported there. I think Puppet had an announcement recently too about that mm-hmm. um, support for Windows. So I wanted to start with it seems like Microsoft is pivoting hardcore on this stuff. Is that? Yeah, it's yeah. It, it, it's kind of eerie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it, you've had this pattern of behavior to expect from Microsoft, and then around the Win Seven time frame into Windows Eight, all of a sudden everything got super secretive, and it was kind of like, hey, let's be Apple and not say anything, and, <laughs> and that spread to the server division, and because because mm, uh, well because the client guys actually controlled the OS, and then the server got to layer some extra stuff on top of it. So normally, how it had been in the past is the server. Got to come out with a roadmap and say, hey, this is where we're going to be heading, you know, because enterprises needed to plan, whatever. All of a sudden, it got quiet. And, <laughs> and I would and, imagine as, as customers, isn't that a little scary? Yeah. Now, for me personally, it wasn't too bad because I got involved in the early adoption program. So I, I'm one of those guys who I, I like to put beta software into production. Uh, and <laughs> YOLO, right? Hey, you know, <laughs> somebody, somebody's got to be the guinea pig, and that tends to be me. Yeah, and apparently it's Stack Exchange. is the <laughs> <laughs> well, this was actually at my previous job. Oh, uh, yeah? Yeah, it was a company called EdgeNet. Uh, we did data services and, and some fun stuff with SQL Server and but uh, I got my boss to sign up for, and, uh, and he was he was all on board with it. And so we're like, yeah, let's let's take this beta software that was just released at build and throw it in production, and had some of the earliest production instances of Server 2012 and out in the wild. And yeah, it's you know it, it's it's fun doing that stuff. You know, kick, kicking the tires, finding where it breaks. And yeah, yeah, yeah. So so the the server division got really quiet. Why do you think? Why did that happen? I, I think because they were told. <laughs> <laughs> um, and if you know, if you look at what's happened at Microsoft, you'll notice that somebody that was heading up the Windows 8 efforts is no longer there, and now they're talking again, and they're sharing things, and stuff's getting released as open source, and yes. there's this like sea of change that is happening, and it's it's happening radically fast for an organization as big as Microsoft. What do you think? Uh, what started that that pivot and that kind of? It almost seems like a wake up call. Yeah. Or a, yeah. I, I think this is something that was seething underneath for quite some time. There was kind of this groundswell of you know hey we need to do this to compete and and let's get out and embrace our communities and and they finally got through kind of the capstone of and, and there's still there's still some resistance to this yet but this, they they finally got kind of right through that last little layer. And now you see stuff kind of spurting out. And so you see stuff getting released as open source. You see stuff that, I mean, that they're, uh, the C-sharp compiler and a whole bunch of ASP.NET and a bunch of the .NET framework all getting open sourced. You have Jeffrey Snover at the PowerShell Summit saying, hey, we should probably open source PowerShell. You know, and, and I, I saw a tweet about that. Where, yeah, where he was saying something like, "How did he put it?" He was like, "I'm not saying we're going to do it, but we we want to do it." You know. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, it's 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 interesting to see those developments. I recently actually met Scott Hanselman, and he's been doing a lot of the open source work. Yep. Yeah, because uh, you'd mentioned, I think, ASP.NET. He did a lot of the work there on that, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Scott's been a, a driving voice for that inside Microsoft, and his boss, Scott Gu, who now heads up the server and tools division. He's the guy who replaced Satya Nadella, who became CEO. Mm-hmm. And so Scott came up in the dev div, uh, developer division and then did a whole bunch of Azure stuff. And you can see, like, with the Azure guys, all their tools, their actual development stuff is out on GitHub. They develop against the repos on GitHub. Oh, wow. Wow. 
Well, we'll have to link to that in the show notes. I didn't actually know that. <laughs> yeah, all the Azure SD, all the Azure SDK stuff that is all out on GitHub, and you know they take issues there, take contributions, that kind of thing. Oh, nice. Whatever happened to Codeplex? I thought Microsoft was doing. <laughs> all, is that still alive, or just just out of curiosity? It's it's still alive. It the the it has some it has this legacy feel to it. You know, it, it's still there. Some projects get released there. You know, the the tendency is to release stuff there. For example, the OneGet framework. So Microsoft's trying to tackle the packaging story now. And so they're, they're, Microsoft OpenTech, as well as the server division, are working on this packaging framework called OneGet. And initially they were going to release it on CodePlex. And a bunch of us in the community said, no, 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 no. Take it to GitHub. It's a lot easier to collaborate. It's in the name. OneGet. Yeah. It's in the name. It's in the name. It's probably different. It's OneGet. But so, and they listened and they moved the repo and it's now living on GitHub. And MS OpenText's also been doing a lot of stuff recently, like around Vagrant. So now there's native Windows guest support and native Hyper-V support in Vagrant because the contributions from them and then the native Windows support was actually from uh, the guys who did the Vagrant Windows plugin. Now, is this part of, I I think it was, uh, I think I was chatting with Scott about this and he had mentioned that there's a lot of work to get the .NET runtime to be a little less crazy and not like totally ruin your machine when you install you know how it used to be where you'd install it and would put all this cruft in the registry they actually want to make it so it's really self-contained almost <laughs> when he, well when he was explaining it, it almost seemed a little docker-esque that you, it, you would have these little things you could stack up and then stack your application package it all together ship it and yep. it would not leave little turds all over your machine yeah and that's so that's the whole thing that uh, they had a bunch of announcements at TechGet about and that was what they're calling .NET for the server or right. uh, the cloud-optimized ASP.NET or something like that. And basically what it is is they just, they've been breaking up and breaking some of the dependencies inside the .NET framework so that they can package it up independently. And so you can pull and just link to using NuGet, which is their dependency manager in the .NET world. Mm-hmm. So you can just say which pieces you need and of which versions you need, and that'll be associated to your app. So when you deploy, you're just deploying those bits and you only the bits of the framework that you need. And they're committed to making that work on Mac and Linux as well, so via Mono and all. Nice. So it's it's interesting. It sounds like they are uh, replicating a lot of the things that you see in the Mac and the Linux world that would make large-scale configuration management not only easier but sort of possible. And so when you have something like Chef or whatever running, you know, there's always some package management connect. Mm-hmm. There's connection to a package manager. But on Windows, that was always a hard story. There was never there wasn't Yum or, or not even really RPMs and stuff like that. It sounds like they realized like to manage this stuff at scale, you kind of need something like that. Yeah, and, and you got to realize in an organization the size of Microsoft, there's a bunch of different people all coming to these realizations and, and kind of driving their directions. And it's the responsibility of those up top to kind of focus them on to somewhat of a cohesive story. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, a lot of this stuff is coming out now, but a lot of this stuff's been underway for quite some time because it's a, a lot of the stuff that they've learned in doing Azure and trying to convince people to use Azure and working with people on projects for Azure. So a lot of their cloud work is really what's driven and and in talking with customers, you know, in the enterprise as far as doing, I hate this term, but private cloud internally. <laughs> uh, it just irritates me. <laughs> <laughs> it's when you say it, a little little part of your soul dies. Exactly. It's, 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 it's one of those phrases that every time you say it, you're like, you know, this is a real thing, and I've seen it, and I know companies make money, and I know it's a thing, but why? And I, it burns my soul. 
and I feel the same way, you know, so Microsoft being Microsoft cannot, <laughs> Microsoft being Microsoft just can't, just can't get away from, you know, renaming things. So like sysadmins are IT pros in the Microsoft realm, and a little bit of me dies every time I catch myself referring to sysadmins as IT pros. What do they call DevOps then? As, as the movement, no, DevOps, DevOps is... Can they rename enough. that? No. <laughs> sysadmins are, are grumpy, grizzled old people who sit in the corners and, and crawl out of the bowels of the building every now and again, so they can get they can get a new name slapped on them. But uh, De- DevOps is a hot, shiny new, new stuff. You can't, yeah. so, so, you can't mess with that name yet. Well, it's actually funny. Uh, Patrick Dubois on Twitter was talking about changing the name to see how many <laughs> product strategies it would break. Did you see that today? That was yeah, funny. I saw that today. Yeah, and, I, and I was like, because he was saying, like, Hudson and Jenkins will just rename it, and I was like, well, does that mean Oracle bought DevOps? Absolutely. <laughs> you know, acquired it through some. That's what, they've done that with. Uh, they did that with NoSQL. They basically said we're setting up a regulatory board for NoSQL. Yeah, I know. And, and it was like, why? But when did you decide? Sense. When did you decide to do this? And they're like, well, if we have, if we set up the regulatory board, then we we know the DevOps and we know the NoSQL. It was one of those like broad brush, like we're just going to buy this and people will be convinced we know. Well, what I we're was. Doing. I, I was recently at a conference and they were talking about a DevOps standards board. Oh, <laughs> kind of, you talk about your soul dying. So back to Microsoft, did they have a lot of their? You know, you you said this was driven a lot by their experience with Azure and the kind of pivot there. Did they have a lot of clients that were trying to do stuff in the cloud and they were like, hey, we need package management that doesn't suck. We need we need package management, period. Were a lot of these developments that, that even though they may have been in development for a long time, are, were they customer-driven from customers having troubles getting stuff up, up to the cloud? Yeah, so I, I haven't worked all that much with Azure, and so a, a lot of this is, and just to be clear, all this is my perception of what goes on at Microsoft. Not, <laughs> I don't work for Microsoft, and I, so I, and I don't have any particular inside knowledge of all this. This is just from my interactions there and what I've seen. But, uh, yeah, I think uh, in large part, so developers are really important to Microsoft, right? Mm-hmm. And that's right. actually been one of the things that, that that has been one of their ways to leverage their business strategy is the focus yep. on developers. Right, and so developers, and when developers are looking to use the cloud, when developers are looking <laughs> to use some sort of service like a platform as a service or, or an IaaS or something like that, they expect a certain set of tools, and most developers tend to be polyglot developers, and so they're, you know, they're not just working in C sharp and .NET. They're also doing JavaScript, and and you know, they're definitely using a variety of technologies to deliver their solutions. They might be in Ruby, they might be in Python, might be in Perl, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, they're going to use what they need to, to get the jobs done, and they need those platforms available on whatever they deploy to. And as they were exposed to all of the stuff that's happening, like, for example, in the Node community, there's a lot of developer love around what was going on in the Node community and Node package management. It's all all these little bits and pieces. It's hard to deploy stuff to the cloud. It's hard to work in our .NET projects like we work in our other projects, for example, or, you know, with Ruby Gems or something like that. Yeah, we have have our NuGet packages, but we still have this big monolithic framework to deal with. And so you have where if I'm doing Node, I'm, you know, I deploy and executable, and I'm good to go, along with my JavaScript files. I think all this messaging kind of percolated in and really helped drive this. I know from the packaging side of things, it's been in Microsoft sites for a long time. If you listen back to uh, DevOps Cafe, talked to Jeffrey Snover mm-hmm. um, like a year and a half ago or something, and they brought up the question of you know how how to deploy stuff. Is it should we be using MSIs or what? And 
you know, he's kind of like, well, we're, we're working on that. Yeah. And yeah, we'll so, link to that in the show notes because that episode was really interesting. You talked a lot about PowerShell, too, and the history of PowerShell. And there was that bit in there that I actually didn't know where – correct me if I have the story or if I'm misremembering it, but it was something about, like, Microsoft really wasn't all that keen on PowerShell to begin with. And he kind of said, I'm going to go take a year and write this. Like, I'm going to just go do it. And he kind of had to prove it to them by actually a, a working product. And obviously, PowerShell has been hugely successful. In fact, that's one of the things usually when you're correcting me about things I have wrong, you're like, well, actually, PowerShell does yeah. that. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I mean, that was one of those, like, guys, I'm going to go build it because you're wrong and you need to, you know, yeah, I need to prove this to you by showing you. And that was actually a really interesting story. Yeah, he, he actually took a demotion to do that, and it took him five years to re-earn his, his status or his rank. Yeah, well, it sounds like it was worth it, at least for developers and on, yes. the, on the customer side. Yeah, since then, I mean, he's rocketed back up. Now he's distinguished engineer there, which is kind of their second highest technical rank, which is, you know, tech fellow is the, the only one higher, and there's only like a handful of those guys. And there's only a handful of distinguished engineers in the company, too. Yeah. And he now is the chief architect for Windows Server and System Center. Right. So, so let's talk a little bit about DSC. We, we talk a lot about Puppet and Chef. DSC stands for Desired State Configuration, is that right? Yep, you got it. Yeah, and so how does it... How is it similar to Puppet and Chef? How is it different than Puppet and Chef? Walk us through that. All right, awesome. So so the other week was TechEd, and one of the hottest topics at TechEd was this desired state configuration. And so desired state configuration is a feature that shipped with Windows Management Framework 4, which is natively in Server 2012 R2, but is available down-level for Server 2012 and uh, 2008 R2. And what it is, it's a config management agent. It's a very dumb config management agent that sits on a box and knows how to basically deserialize a standards-based document that describes the state of a system and apply and basically pass parameters to the PowerShell modules that, or you can actually do WMI-based resources and can pass the parameters to those resources to actually implement things or to, to make things happen. So this kind of like, uh, is this document kind of like um, a cookbook? Is that equivalent, yeah, it, sort of? Yeah, so it'd be a cookbook or a manifest in the puppet world. And so some of the differences here in DSC is in DSC, you'll author that document beforehand, and there's not going to be client-side discovery that can modify what's going to be applied to the machine outside of the resource. The resource is the, is the dynamic unit there, mm-hmm. where in you know Puppet and Chef, you have OHI and Factor, which can d- dynamically query systems, either return information to the server in the case of Factor or locally in the case of the Chef client, then alter what's actually going to happen to the system. But that's all done way up front in desired state configuration. Now, just before we get too far, I just want to make sure this is clear. Desired state configuration is not a product. It is not out there to be a competitor with Chef and Puppet. It is a feature in Windows that is there to be used, like Perfmon, like WMI, like well, failover clustering. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, was, I was just about <laughs> to ask because actually EJ was saying that he had to set up a Jenkins slave on Windows and he was like pulling his hair out because of that. So he was talking about like you know, it'd be great to have something like DSC that would do that for you. Like, how might you use... Is DSC exposed via Chef these days? Is there, like, a resource provider for it? I mean, how would you mix those two if you had a Chef infrastructure because maybe you had a bunch of Linux machines and a bunch of Macs and then you also have Windows maybe now that you want to automate? Do those play well together? Do they conceptually integrate well together? How's that? Walk us through that. Yeah, so so this is some of the exciting stuff that uh, they demoed at TechEd. It was also demoed at ChefConf. Chef is, in the current version, does not have this yet, but it's in a soon upcoming version. 
where they can natively use DSC resources as elements in their recipes. So, and it would be just like using a native chef. Is it, uh, they call them resources or whatever the native... Um, Chef has lightweight resource providers. Is that what you... Yeah. 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 So instead of like, instead of you know, declaring a, a file that you want to have placed there, you, you might do a DSC underscore and then file. And if, if it follows that naming pattern, it knows to leverage the DSC resources on, on the host machine. Gotcha. Okay. And so the cool thing about that is Microsoft is really banging this DSC drum because they want their feature sets to be controllable in a declarative manner. And if they have this standards-based agent that's out there, their teams are all writing resources to support that. Whoever uses that agent or you know, whoever, whoever utilizes that pattern has access to declarative configuration management across all those products without having to re-implement that functionality. So right. you wouldn't right. have to create your own SQL Server cookbook or your own puppet module for, for IIS. You, know, you could leverage what would ship from Microsoft. Now, currently that space is a little thin, but as we know with Microsoft, that sometimes it takes them a little while, but then once they get cranking, they can get cranking. Yeah, you know, what? I wanted to talk a little bit about Azure, but this is a good point to bring up something in their Azure demo at ChefConf, and I think I, we talked about this a little bit. There's the, that old running joke about, you know, Microsoft takes three tries to get anything right. Um, <laughs> but it seems like with Azure and DSC, that's not really the case. They're kind of coming out of the, the gate punching, and, and it's everything's like, yeah, I, I don't, what, what analogy do you want? But like, all the, the cylinders are firing, and, and the products are actually usable, and there isn't this like, we have to do the second system and the third system to kind of get it right. Why yeah. do you think that is with Azure and with DSC, is it because they were able to leverage what like Amazon was doing and sort of do that, or is it just kind of a change in the way they're developing their products? It's a change in the way they're developing their products, for sure. There might be other components to it, but DSC was written in like six months, and it was turned around and previewed to customers, and they take feedback, and not to toot my horn here, but to, to illustrate kind of the feedback or how accepting they are of feedback. At the PowerShell Summit, Jeffrey Snover was doing his closing session, and he was talking about DSC and how important it is to kind of kick the tires and give feedback and how receptive the team is. Is like when, when Steve calls, developers start typing yeah. because I'm, I'm giving him constant and feedback on this stuff because I've got it out in production and whatever. They are literally taking... So this shipped, the official bits shipped last fall. There's been two previews now of vNext of Desired State Configuration or the Windows Management Framework. And when I saw Jeffrey at the PowerShell Summit, he's like, so have you... Uh, deployed and kicked the tires on the preview yet? And I said, no, I haven't had the chance. I've been you know, kind of getting ready for this and a couple projects. He's like, they're all your bug fixes that you've been reporting. Come on, what are you, <laughs> what are you waiting for? Well, it's, a, it's, it's like from your mouth to the GitHub repos, you know, commits to GitHub repos. Right, and and so with, with a lot of the stuff they're doing with Azure, with Azure they're releasing constantly. This Windows Management Framework stuff, they are they are working on picking up their tempo and releasing this stuff. Oh, so that's interesting. So you're saying yeah. it's almost, uh, they're kind of implementing their own version of continuous delivery in a way that they haven't before. Yep, and so when we talked about like kind of it takes three kicks at the can for them to get things right or, or it gives them three tries, that was when the release cycle is like three years apart. Mm-hmm. And one of the whole things that we hear in, in continuous delivery in the DevOps space is <laughs> if, if you give me feedback three years later, you know, I'm so far past that. Right. You know, we, that feedback you give me now is going to affect what comes out in six years, you know? <laughs> right, right, right. So, right. 
with a faster release cycle and getting that stuff in front of customers faster. And what runs in Azure is pretty much what runs in Windows Server. And so they're constantly, not only are they getting faster to customers on, in the Windows Server SKUs, but they're beating on it in Azure beforehand. Ah, gotcha. So, that's an interesting like platform to basically test a lot of that stuff. Yeah. You know, yeah. so you might say, okay, I'm gonna throw a lot at this thing, but they're probably gonna beat on that platform a lot harder than we are. <laughs> uh, in in their in their scenario. You know yeah. there's always edge cases and I tend to work for employers that find them. <laughs> so on the yeah. on the gaming on the gaming side, one of the things that I thought was pretty amazing was the whole Titanfall like apparently they won I think I don't remember his name, but the, the guy from Microsoft yeah. who was talking about Azure and at, at ChefCon, how they have like 100,000 Azure instances that would run Titanfall. So every time somebody's playing Titanfall online, they get their own like Azure instance. And yeah. uh, that, I mean, that when I heard that, I was thinking to myself, wow, that, that's insane. I mean, in, in, in a good way. So it sounds like they're doing a lot of cool stuff with Azure, basically. Yeah, well, and actually I wanted to talk about Azure because there was that example. Seth, you were there. You saw that demo, right? I, I, I know. I'm familiar, I'm familiar with the, how they do it. I don't know if I saw that session, though. Yeah, it was, it was fascinating because I, one of the big things, and, and I, I know that you know this is a big problem, Seth, is they were trying to basically be able to prevent cheating. If you host a game and you control the network, I mean, you can play games with that stuff in yeah. terms of, of cheating. And, and they were saying, you can't do that if if you're talking to an Azure instance. Th- that demo also had some fascinating stuff where they brought up. All, uh, yeah, I I think what a lot of people don't realize this was a realization for me about Azure is that the number of services that they have and offer really does rival. Uh, Amazon, in terms of number of services, they've got the MapReduce cluster stuff. They've got like automatic notifications for mobile app stuff that, mm-hmm. that's like built into the platform. Which I know, Yusuf, we were we were just talking about that. You know, you know, there are companies that that's their bread and butter, and now it's just assumed that it's kind of part of the cloud provider, which is an interesting, yeah, yeah, yeah. The mobile services things been around for a little while, so that's pretty cool. They actually released a whole bunch of other Azure stuff at TechEd as well. Yeah, so let's let's uh, talk about TechEd. That was their event last week? Yep, down in Houston. They had about 8,000 people out for it, and like I said, the number one session there was a PowerShell session, then number two session there was a desired state configuration session. So <laughs> command line and automation are were definitely hot topics for the show. I, I know on, on the first day there, there was a desired state configuration session, ostensibly talking about Azure but it was primarily about desired state configuration. But that also had uh, Julian Dunn from Chef come up and demo how Chef can take advantage of the DSC providers. And I know they got a good bit of traffic at their booth through the rest of the week. Puppet guys were there as well. And so one of the reasons that that both those guys were there, and you alluded to this earlier, was Azure now has hooks for not only DSC, but for deploying a Puppet agent and a Chef client to Azure VM nodes. And it's just a checkbox in the configuration or a bit in the API that you twiddle. And yeah, and now you can leverage those powerful configuration management tools right off the bat from your Azure VM. So they talked some about that. One of of the other things that was really, that kind of really set the stage for how important configuration management was though at this conference I'm a co-author of a little book that we mainly distribute as an ebook for uh, on desired state configuration, and we printed up 3,000 copies, and we got rid of those in about a day and a half, mm-hmm. and we had 10,000 downloads of it after that. 
So it sounds like, I mean, there's certainly interest in this space on the developer and the system administrator, you know, Windows, what did you say there, IT pros? Yeah. Uh, aside. Tell me a little bit here. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I remember, I, the last time I, I did an install of, I think it was Server 2008, and this was years ago, it was, well, what years, this is probably two or three years ago now, but I remember there was an option that you could just install, like, like the kernel stuff and, yep. and, and all of that, and I was like, that's interesting, I'll do that, and, and maybe it'll be usable, and I it was I could not use it. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I'm not, but, well, no, no, but that's, I'm not a window, you know, I'm not, my, my focus is at Windows, and I think all it does is, it like, boots up into, like, a PowerShell thing, and, and you need to sort of be able to manipulate everything via PowerShell. I'm curious, is Azure largely machines like that, or do they have the, the overhead of the GUI as well? So I would hope they are more like that. So just to kind of to, to talk a little bit about the, the feature set that you brought, starting with Server 2008, they started introducing this idea of Server Core. And that was strip out Internet Explorer, strip out Explorer.exe, because those, those are kind of the two big sources of patches, and then rip out all the UI elements. And, right. and it wasn't PowerShell you were dropping into, it was command.exe. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah, so with 2008. Uh, 2008 R2, they, and it only supported a handful of roles. You could run a static web server, you could run DNS server, Active Directory, you know, a few roles. Server 2008 R2 improved on that somewhat, and they introduced PowerShell there. They had uh, onto that platform. And in the, both those cases, 2008 and 2008 are two, it was a life choice. You were, If you installed Server Core, if you wanted to get a UI back, you had to reinstall the OS. In Server 2008 are two, the UI is just a feature. You can turn it on and off, and a reboot oh, wow. will get you between them. You can physically remove the bits from the box if you want a little leaner OS image. I would hope most of the instances in Azure, my experience... Uh, in the Windows world would lead you to believe that most people have remote desktop up and full UIs and that kind of thing. It makes me a little sad. But <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it sounds like, because I was surprised in a lot of the Azure demos that we've seen that that integration with Visual Studio is actually pretty pretty tight. And it's, you know, Microsoft is known for doing the integrations like that, but it was pretty spiffy to be able to, like, write your code and then actually deploy directly, like, launch Azure instances and deploy all of that stuff all from kind of Visual Studio. And, and so it makes sense that, that if you were doing it that way and the, and the API ecosystem on the remote side were rich enough that you you would need to run our desktop with Explorer or something like that. Right. So so my guess would be that if you were deploying like to the Azure websites feature or to the PaaS feature of the you know the web roles and worker roles, those are most likely server core. And those are they're running as lean and mean as possible so that they can jam as many images on a box as possible. Or or you know run them as efficiently as possible. When you start talking about IaaS, the infrastructure as a service stuff, where people get to choose what they spin up. I'm guessing even though Server Core as of Server 2012 is the default install option, I'm guessing most people install with the UI because they, they, they need that crutch. Though we've got remote management tools, they work well, and most people use them more than they realize. Once you take away that UI, people start getting a little nervous. And <laughs> hey, it doesn't hurt to get a little nervous every now and again. You know, <laughs> learn, learn a little something new grow a little bit so <laughs> yeah well it sounds too like I mean you know a lot of times and we talk about this on the show a lot of times where there are some people that they are sort of 
they haven't, you know, we run into this with Chef a lot, where it's like the resistance is, hey, I'm writing Ruby and I don't want to write code, right? A lot of times, I mean, you kind of said it, it's, it's a crutch logging in and launching something as opposed to writing a PowerShell module to do it or, or kind of running at it from that angle. Yeah. So the other thing about Azure, which I think may surprise some people, was funny to see this at ChefConf. Azure, you can run Linux VMs. Yep. Uh, you can run Ubuntu, and I think I saw a CentOS in there too. Yeah, so it's not... FreeBSD. Oh yeah, okay. So it's not. It is not just Windows. It's it's, no. it's the family. So Azure is. Hyper-V. Mm-hmm. That, I mean, the, the infrastructure as a service, that's Hyper-V. If you want to run that in your own data center, they ship bits for that. So if you have the system center stuff, there's a toolkit called the Windows Azure Pack that gives you the same Azure portal and lets you build your own custom workflow so you can build your own custom loadouts for how you want your machines to, the, you know, what you want to have available, who you want to make available to what. So you can but, uh, build your own private cloud? Is that what we're talking yep. about? <laughs> <laughs> I got <gotcha>. you. <laughs> yeah, so uh, it's hard to talk about this topic and not not actually not say cringe it a little bit. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so the idea here is that Azure isn't anything more than some automation layered on top of Windows Server, and okay. so the virtualization that's Hyper V. You can live migrate virtual machines from your on-premise infrastructure into Azure. Oh wow! That's, so that's... they can be running the whole time. <laughs> Yeah, and with VPNs and uh, you know everything, keep keeping everything connected. Yeah, you. So is, can... <laughs> is so is Stack Exchange running on Azure or some no. part of it? <laughs> no, we don't. We don't. We don't do cloud. Um, <laughs> we we do physical machines yeah. primarily. Yeah, well, and, I, and it's funny too because actually when I learned GitHub is largely physical infrastructure, it was that was some workloads just are better if they lend themselves to that, and that makes sense. Yusuf, you had a question about SQL Server. So I had a question about SQL Server. But I also had a question about slipstreaming service packs and stuff into different OSs. I mean, um, I guess if you're running um, on Azure, that's not an issue because you'll, you'll select an image that's already been generated. But is, has that changed at all? Is it easier to, to do that if I want to, if I'm running bare metal, for example? Yeah, I mean, uh, so there's there's a handful of commands. There's the DISM commands and there's some PowerShell commands that do the same type of thing that allow you to service images offline. So you can slipstream patches or service packs to them. Uh, we haven't had a service pack in a while. Not since 2008, our 2 SP1. So it's all been just regular Windows updates, uh, but you can slipstream those in. There's a tool set called the uh, uh, MDT, the Microsoft Deployment Toolkit, that gives you a, some tooling for creating custom images and deploying stuff out, capturing capturing images back, so you can make your own custom images and put some workflow around that. But yeah, the uh, offline servicing works pretty well. Uh, restoring like SQL Server um, instances, both the app and actual database, there were some... Okay, so I'm thinking back to SQL Server maybe 2000, 2002. You'd have to do some funky registry hacks to get stuff to work. I mean, these are really old versions of SQL Server, so I'm kind of wondering if you still have to do that. That's that's basically my question. Yeah, I, I don't actually back up SQL Server. I back up the databases, and then, and then I just redeploy a SQL Server if it goes down and redeploy the databases. Because my whole install is all scripted out. Right, okay. So, yeah... So if you were if you were actually going off like of a backup image or something, I could see where you might have to do some ugly stuff. I I don't know of anyone who actually still does that. Yeah, it's probably it's it's, it's, it's kind of an old pattern, but I guess yeah. more along the lines of the Windows registry. Is that still something that people still have to hack to get it, stuff it's done? Still, or it's still there. You don't necessarily have to hack it to to get 
most on. In fact, I'm usually not in the registry. I'm a Windows admin pretty much for like the last eight years, and I don't go into the registry all that often. Um, it's there. It, it's got stuff every now and again. You have to go in to clean something out that gets munged up. But more and more things are getting dropped into config files that with their apps. Just about to say, has that been sort of de-emphasized as a as a design kind of pattern? Because what's yeah. interesting, yeah, what's interesting <laughs> on the on the Linux side, you see gconf, which is basically a registry, but the apps don't rely a lot on it. So it's 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 like we've kind of Microsoft has de-emphasized the registry, and Linux has provided it for apps that want to use it and you know we've kind of met in the middle there where it's like it's not relied upon as strongly as it used to be but it's there yes I, I th- you know in, in the server world you don't have to spend if you're working with decent apps you don't have to spend much time in the registry the client side tends to be where you end up doing more registry hacks because you're doing more odd stuff to the machine to right. uh, or, or you're installing these odd one-off apps that might not uninstall cleanly or overwrite someone else's settings or haven't been updated to the latest version of Windows, even though it's been out for a couple of years, and still write registry settings improperly. So occasionally you got to delve in there, roll up your sleeves, but so uh, like less and less. Yusuf's question is, if you have to be mucking around in the registry and hacking the registry, then something, you know, that's indicative of a different problem of some sort. Yeah. <laughs> app or, or somebody made a mistake somewhere. Lastly, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, what do you see in the future of this space in Windows land? What's the big things that are happening, people working on, Microsoft's working on, what are people excited about? Well, like I said, I, I've got so many people that have been reaching out uh, really interested in figuring out what's going on or, or what's you know what the whole story is around this configuration management space. And that, that's actually got me really excited as far as where the Microsoft admin community is going is like, hey, people are starting to pay attention to this. Now it might be a few years before it really picks up traction being deployed in places, but the early adopters are starting to starting to get there. A lot more acceptance of, yes, I have to be able to script, and yes, my scripts are worth protecting and treating in a professional manner. Yeah. And, oh, maybe I need to think about this source control thing. And <laughs> and maybe, you know... That's maybe, not source safe. Correct, yeah. And, <laughs> you know, and SharePoint is not source control. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, you can version things in there, but not really. And but please don't. Please don't. Yes, please don't. Um, you know that, and that we need to look at patterns of how do we collaborate on our scripts together and work in our teams. And you know, there's there's definitely more interest in in the whole uh, DevOps movement. So I, I've been fortunate enough to be awarded the Microsoft MVP award, which is basically an award they give out for community involvement. It has nothing to do with technical skill. It means I talk a lot. <laughs> and so they have a summit. And so MVPs get to give early feedback on things. And uh, so we, we get to go out to uh, this conference every year that Microsoft hosts. And last year, Gene Kim and Kevin Bear were kind enough to hook me up with 100 copies of the Phoenix Project to give out there and just to kick off some DevOps conversations and, and you know start spinning. And it was funny how, how many people were like, yes, I've read that, or, oh, what's this all about? And then the response from you know some of the Microsoft folks there, oh, yeah, I've read that, or this guy at work's been bugging me to read that. And so I'm very hopeful 
for where the uh, where the future goes in the Microsoft uh, sysadmin realm. I, it I seems think like a lot of this, like just kind of standing back and kind of looking at it, it seems like a there's it's broken some of the drudgery around. You know, I mean, a, a lot of times it's like people thought of Windows as the Exchange server and it's email and Active Directory and that's it. And it yep. seems like a lot of these conversations, especially with kind of .NET and the cloud apps and stuff like that, is removing some of that drudgery from the sysadmin side of things. It's like we get to play with interesting configuration management stuff. We get to script and learn new stuff there, and it's it's not as fix my Active Directory problem as it used to be. You know, if that makes sense, is that yeah, accurate? Or, yeah, or you know, that's one of the nice things about being at Stack Exchange is I get to highlight a web ops shop that runs in the Microsoft stack that is insanely performant, you know, just rough numbers. We get about 6 million people a day coming to the site. We get about 22 million page views, and I can run everything off of two web servers if I have to. In fact, we did one day when we had a bug that took out most of our web tier. (laughs) (laughs) But that's amazing. We have a couple of SQL servers in the background, and we we leverage good patterns, like we cache the living crap out of everything, but the .NET stack is insanely performant. And it's fun to be able to highlight that and, and kind of show things off. So Yeah, so briefly I wanted to mention you gave a talk at Velocity New York last year about monitoring and, and it had a lot of details about how Stack Exchange runs that stuff. We'll link to that, uh, the slides in the show notes, but I wanted to ask you open source some stuff there. I believe it was around monitoring, right? Yeah, so... How's that going? So our monitoring project is in full swing. We're hoping to open source it later this year. Uh, no promises. But we've written a collector, an agent that will run on, uh, it's written in Ghost, and it, so it compiles down for Linux, Windows, and Mac. And the backend's open TSDB, and it captures all sorts of metrics. And it's, it's even though we're still in the heavy development phase of it, it's already actually producing some good results for us in, in operation. So, nice. yeah, yeah. Uh, we're still working on naming. <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember you. You had some. I, I think you had some pictures in the in the slide deck that was output from that project. Uh, no, that that would have been that that would have been our just current monitoring dashboard. That okay, would be cool. uh, op server. And gotcha. Okay. Yeah, that that one's open source out on GitHub. That's if, what I was thinking of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. If, you're, if you're running SQL Server in your environment, or Elasticsearch, or Redis, got some really nice plugins for that already. Yeah, just wire it up, point it to the right place, and or uh, HA proxy. Nice. Um, yeah, hooks in real nice there. So one last question for you. Actually, listeners may remember back in episode 29, we had a DevOps dear Abby, and your question was, why does it feel like Windows sysadmins are kind of looked down upon in the DevOps kind of space? Uh, and we talked about it a little bit. Do you still feel that's that's a problem or an issue? or or it's Because it sounds like there's lots of interesting things happening. Uh, do you feel that's changed a little bit? I think it's changing somewhat. I, I watched a bunch of the videos and, and watched the tweet stream like out from ChefConf, and that was real heartening, you know, to see how they're trying to embrace the uh, Microsoft ecosystem as well, and you know, from the Microsoft side, being open to that. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it's kind of an eerie feeling, but you know, that definitely makes me uh, makes me a little more positive out- outlook there. I still think there's a and sometimes it's correct. As much as I want to fight this, uh, as of Microsoft admins, as we point the GUIs and point and click and work our way through our UIs, and we don't really necessarily understand how things work under the covers. And that's, I think, that's painting with too broad of a stroke, uh, you know, as far as the Windows Server community. But that in certain conference circles that I've been in, certain user group circles, that tends to be a perception that I pick up. 
but it's changing some. Well, it sounds like, I mean, a lot of the technologies and things that you're talking about, there is a lot of PowerShell scripting and, and actually you're talking about managing scripts and, and learning those skills. I mean, that's something that everybody makes that joke about shell scripts, right? <laughs> yeah, writing shell scripts. So it's it sounds like that's analogous on our side to what we kind of have to address. You know, people sitting in the basement writing their, their bespoke shell scripts. Yeah, and, and that, you know, I, I don't want to go on for too long here and drag it out too horribly for for listeners, but this is one thing I'm, I'm really, really passionate about is the scripts that we write are no less important than the source code developers generate. The scripts that we write run the systems that that source code runs on, and we can very easily, by mishandling and mistreating that code, take out and wreak havoc in our internal systems just as just as bad as a bad code push can do. Mm-hmm. And we don't use some of the patterns and practices that have grown up in the development community around that. We don't write tests. We don't use source control. We don't we don't have a release process for our scripts into production. So this is something that I've, I've been talking about a lot recently and was actually engaged with a client earlier this year, you know, spending a bit of time talking about a lot of this stuff is how do we treat our scripts as if they are their actual source code that they're important to the business, and how do we get the business to perceive that? Because when you talk about scripting, most people think, oh, a throwaway script. Right. Or I'll bang out a script in a couple of minutes. Right. Well, you're preaching to the choir here, I think. But yeah, uh, that is definitely something that I'm glad you are because it's something that we need to keep talking about until that perception starts to change a little bit because you're exactly right. The development that we're doing, if we do infrastructure as code, uh, a bad day uh, of coding can have serious problems, just like you said it, exactly, as a a bad code push. So Yeah, or I mean, if I write a script to go change a setting on a bunch of servers in my environment and I fat finger the path and I wipe out something else that's critical important and send my whole environment to a tizzy because I'm fat fingered it once and there's no checks and we just hit enter and let and let the thing run <laughs> don't do that boys and girls <laughs> yeah I mean it, it, nothing bothers me more nowadays than when somebody says I'm not a developer I'm just a scripter I'm oh, just yeah. an admin scripter and you got to realize this stuff is important and it's important to realize the importance of and I'm stacking importance on there a lot but it's, it's 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 important to realize that we need to treat it with the care it deserves and we need to focus on the development skill sets and patterns that we need you know leverage source control leverage tests how do i know that script is going to work into production yeah yeah definitely well like i said i i, I hope you're preaching to the choir with our listeners but yeah i Certainly agree. We need to keep banging that drum until it's it's a little I got more understood and more practiced pattern. Stephen, it's been great chatting with you about this stuff, especially in the Windows world. I think it's a space that we don't often talk about, and it's an important one because there's a lot of interesting stuff running on Windows, and there's a lot of interesting stuff Microsoft is doing, obviously. So I appreciate you uh, correcting me when I get it wrong, and feel free to keep doing that because I'm glad someone is out there doing it. Thank you guys very much for having me on. I I love getting a chance to talk about this stuff. In case you couldn't tell, I like to talk a little bit. (laughs) And we'll be back in a moment on the show. Welcome back to the Chip Show for 
So for our last segment tonight, we are doing a tool tip, something we heard on the Twitter sphere. Some people are going to laugh at this because they're like, wow, why are you so late to the party? I think Seth actually is going to make fun of me for this, but I did not know it existed. It's kind of cool. It's a tool called Mosh. You can get it at mosh.mit.edu. It is a like SSH, but it is better than SSH, I am told. Why is that, Seth? Uh, because it's friggin' awesome. Um <laughs> Yeah, basically the idea behind Mosh is that you know it's so it's it replaces SSH in that so you the command you run is like Mosh and then your server name just like you would and it does all the normal SSH stuff like finds your SSH configs and basically what you'd expect it to. Do. However, it opens up so it's two things. Yes, yeah, so you have a UDP protocol. Uh-huh. Um, so it opens up a port, so like I think it like runs on six thousand or something like this, and that is so the idea is that you can lose connectivity. So if you're ever like doing a long running thing, and you, this is why people run like screen, you're running a long running thing, and like something happens to your terminal, network hiccup or whatever, and like even in that split second, everything is disaster. Your process was bound up in that TTY, and all bound up in that TTY, all bound up in that TTY, and then you get then. You get a big sad because everything hit like all the shit hit the fan. Yeah. Um, Mosh allows you to. So I was actually using this on the train down to Portland, and the the Amtrak sir, like connectivity is super sketchy. Um, <laughs> you don't so, say. Yeah, and so I'm so we're going down the coast, and the cool thing is when Mosh so when you disconnect, it's like hey, haven't been able to connect to the server for And then just has a timer that runs, and it's like, hey, it's been like a minute and a half since I talked to the server. Just thought I'd let you know. And then the connection comes back, and boom, you're there. It also does some other cool things. Um, obviously, like, it's not just that. It does, so it makes, it minimizes your network lag. It does, so like local echo for editing of the text as you're like actually inputting keystrokes. So it just, it feels more responsive and it it basically it just I, so far I haven't I haven't really seen a good I haven't seen a, a, a convincing downside to why you wouldn't want to use it. Uh, can I still use it with Screen? Oh yeah, I use it with Tmux. Okay. Well, so you, Mosh, yeah, you, you're silly weird Tmux. I don't. Well, so so I mean I still need so Mosh is what I use. It's it's like for me it's the connection level. So Tmux still allows me to do my window management and pane oh, management right, okay. on the remote end. Other but, stupid question. Yes. Do I need to run a Mosh server to use Mosh, or does it still talk to SSH? So that's the cool thing. It can talk to straight to SSH, but it's also so when you install Mosh on the other end, it's uh, user space programs. So they're not even. So you don't actually have to have run a daemon or anything, um, which is even makes it even cooler. But so you, is, it's, oh. it's, it's so it's yeah. So it's in, so no privilege code. Let's say they have that on their their site. So yeah, I, I just saw that and I was trying to find like I want to like I, of course I'm the crazy Gen 2 user. I see that it's got that but I really want for my Mac. Oh there it is. I see it. A Mac, oh, yeah. it's, a, it's, a Mac package. It's super it's super easy to get it. Just, this seems like I, it would be uh, working from a coffee shop dream. Oh yeah, I just do brew install mosh and then I just move so I can I can keep the shell running. And let it reconnect whenever. And I mean, I still have my Tmux session, so it's it's just basically how do you want to work? Do you actually want to like go through the the extra step of firing up your session again, or do you just want it to like be magically auto persistent? Yeah, the thing that I can see that I really like is the that lag control or, or it, it makes it makes life in so, the coffee especially, shop, especially when you're really really laggy. Yeah, yeah, that could make wow. me very happy. Yeah. All right, well, I'm going to have to uh, give this a try. Tmux, I, I couldn't ever get on that train. I'm sorry. It's okay. 
a screen fan, but I will mm-hmm. give it a try because the coffee shop stuff sometimes it's painful, man. Yeah, I got I got like I got like four panes of Tmux up on my twenty seven inch monitor right now. <laughs> it's so it's so beautiful. All right, well we'll check that out. Mosh mosh.mit.edu. So, a couple notes on conferences. DevOps Days Pittsburgh is next week, the 29th and 30th of May. DevOps Days Silicon Valley tickets are also on sale. They finally have that uh, all planned, and you can we'll put a link in the show notes to where you can pick up tickets for that. It's around Velocity. Uh, and then, of course, Velocity Santa Clara is coming up. Then it uh, looks like it's the 25th and 26th of June. I will actually be speaking there if you're going to be in the area. So check that out, definitely. So from San Francisco, this is Wally signing off. From San Diego, this is Yusuf signing off. From Seattle, this is Seth signing off. And we will see you in a couple of weeks.